The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. As we get ready for our next installment in the life of Christ, Isaiah is passing out uh, a little chart. It comes from the chart book that we talked about at the first part of the course from Dr. Thomas, and it's on the six phases of the trial that Jesus underwent in front of both the Jews and the Romans. Now, I don't probably ha don't have enough for everybody that's in here. If you didn't get one and you need one, uh, just let me know, and I, I can either send you one by email or print it and bring it to you next time. So we're in part 12 of a 13-part study. We're actually now uh, at the death of Christ, part two of that. I was, <clears throat> I was talking to Kathleen before. I'm going to ask you to hold your questions this morning, just one, because I think it'll help us to go through and get the flow of the narrative better for the three phases of the Roman trial. And two, I have grandfather duties. Bev and I have to go somewhere uh, right, right about 1 o'clock. We need to be out of here. So I, I don't want to discourage your questions at all if you have them. Uh, and I'm going to ask you some questions. So, <clears throat> But if you have some and we don't get to them today, jot them down, send them to an email. We'll make sure that we cover them. So this is where we are in this chart that we've shown on numerous occasions. We're at the very end of our study, really starting with Passion, well, with the triumphal entry of Passion Week. You'll see there that it shows a month and a half. Why is that? I mean, we only have a week, right? Why does it say a month and a half? Well, is it because when, when they went up to the mount and they did all of the things preparing for Passover and those kinds of things, but all that still happens within the same week in Passion Week. So why does it say a month and a half there? Okay, so after he was resurrected, right, he appeared for a period of 40 days. So that's we'll look at that as part of our study, but that's why the Passion Week is longer than a week. It's uh, about a month and a half in duration. We've, we looked already, here's what it looks like on the outline. Uh, last week we looked at the betrayal and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane as Judas led the uh, at least part of the Roman cohort out there. It could have been up to as many as 200 men. And we looked at the first three phases of what's going to be a, a six-phase trial. Who were the first three phases in front of? The Jews. Okay, the Jews, Annas being the first one. So let's look at a map. I, I chose a different map. Uh, this time because it had some of the uh, locations on it that the other map didn't. But if we start here in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember that's where Christ led the eleven out to. That's where he prayed three times that if there's any way for this to pass from him, to please let that be, but, but not his will but the Father's be done. That's where Judas leads the Roman cohort to, and that's where they arrest Jesus. They take him first back to the house of Annas. Now, Annas wasn't the official high priest, but he was the patriarch. He'd had several descendants who had served as, as high priest. And the maps that I've looked at don't show where he lived. We don't have uh, an identification of his home. And I should say, too, just as a qualification, we're not absolutely sure on a number of these locations where, where we think they are. We're sure about the Garden of Gethsemane, but... They take him to Anna's house first. He's interviewed there, just a short interview. Um, and then from there, they take him to the house of Caiaphas. 
Now, as we discussed, it's possible that Annis lived in that same complex and they shared the same courtyard and that might be the resolution for why we have one denial by Peter and John's gospel that takes place at the house of Annas and three others in the other gospels. <coughs> Just as a side note, I know we spent a lot of time on this before, I actually came across another possibility for resolving that issue of whether or not there's actually four denials rather than three. And this view says that John's gospel talks about going to Anna's house first, but it also talks about doing what he does or recording what he does with the high priest. So their position is that it's actually Caiaphas that he's before even in John's gospel and that the remark of taking him to Anna's house first is kind of a parenthetical remark, but the actual incident recorded in John's gospel is Caiaphas. That's another way to, to resolve that. You have to read John's gospel a little differently to make that work, but you have to do something to make any of the views work. If any of you are interested in doing a little more study on that, I'll be glad to pass along that journal article to you that, that makes that case. In any case, they go to the house of Caiaphas. You remember that he's being questioned there. They're trying to get testimony, sufficient testimony, that they can make their charge and go to the Romans with it. Uh, they finally get Jesus to confess that he is indeed the Christ. And because all this has taken place at night, they meet again at the council house, which is, we believe, up in this area, right behind the temple. And they do that after the sun comes up to make the trial more official. And from this point, now they're going to go to Pontius Pilate, who's the governor of Judea. Now, when it talks about him and the praetorium, his official residence was in a place called Caesarea, but when he was in Jerusalem, his residence, and again, there's disagreement here, was either in the Antonio Fortress that overlooked the temple complex or down at Herod's palace, which would be on the Western Wall. I'm just trying to give you a, a feel for some of these places. They're all right there together within the city that Jesus is gonna be taken to over the course of these trials. There's one more location that I want to point out to you that's at the very bottom of the map called Hakeldama. What's that mean? Yeah. Field of blood. And what's the significance of that, particularly for what we'll be looking at this morning? Okay, that's where Judas dies. And that's actually the first thing that we're going to look at in our passage this morning. Okay, so we have the remorse and suicide of Judas. It takes place between the three phases of the Jewish side of the trial that we looked at last week and the three Roman phases that we'll look at this morning. This is in Matthew's Gospel. It's the only Gospel that's recorded in, although it's alluded to in Acts chapter 1. So we'll read both of those accounts. We're going to see that, again, there's some differences between the two accounts, and we have to think through how we would harmonize those. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 3. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, uh, particularly by the Jews, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Remember, that's what they had paid for him to set up a way that they, they could betray Jesus and arrest him. Judas says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they say, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary would normally associate that with the temple and departed and he went away and hanged himself now 
Let's look over at Acts 1 for just a minute. Okay, I'm going to read two more verses out of Matthew, and then I'm going to look at Acts 1. Uh, Matthew 27, 6, And the chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, It's not lawful for them, it's not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. Now, this is the first of several incidents that we'll look at this morning where we see, on the one hand, how fastidious these Jewish authorities are, at the same time, they're, they're betraying innocent blood. They're charging man with a charge that he's not guilty of. And it really points up the hypocrisy that has been clear all the way through our study in the life of Christ and Gospels. They counseled together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Now, we don't know why it was called the potter's field before. It could have been that that was the place that the potters went to get their clay. The name is going to end up being changed. Verse 8, for this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Now, it sounds like as you read that, why is it called the field of blood? Exactly. Blood money that they had used to find an opportune time to arrest Jesus was used to purchase it. Let's go over to Acts 1, verses 18 and 19. Remember, this is volume 2, basically, of Luke's account. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote Acts as a follow-up to that. Acts 1.18 says, Now this man, referring to Judas, acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. Now, who bought the field? Judas or the chief priest? The priest. the priest bought it, but they used Judas' money, right? The money was given to Judas to betray him. He ended up throwing it back into the temple. They used it to buy the field. It says, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Okay, so how did he die? Matthew says he hung himself. This says he fell. Can both of those things be true? Yes. Absolutely. In fact, there's a long church tradition that says that he was in that area that I showed you on the map. He hung himself from a tree. No telling how long he was up there. People would have been reluctant, especially at this season of the year, to go touch a dead body. But the limb broke. He fell into the field. Because he was probably ripe, he, he burst open, and that's why his bowels spilled out. Verse 19, it became known, known to all who were living in Jerusalem, and that is <coughs> the incident of his being hanged there and, and falling into that field. So that in their own language, that field was called Hakaldama, that is, field of blood. So again, I think both reasons could apply. On the one hand, it was a field purchased with blood money. On the other, Judas was the first one to, to die there and to be buried there. And ultimately, it's going to be used as a burial place for strangers. So again, uh, these aren't contradictions, even though they are differing accounts. Like we talked about at the very beginning, when you see a car accident out there and you've got four witnesses, they're going to give different information, but you can put them all together and give an account that doesn't contradict itself. Okay, back to Matthew's Gospel. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. And if you're looking at an NAS or the, the harmony itself, you see there's several references there to Zechariah and Jeremiah. Well, 
Matthew, if, if you read the account, we're not going to take the time to do it this morning. If you read the account in Zechariah, that's the one that fits most closely verbally. But Matthew says that it's Jeremiah the prophet that's, uh, that this is the fulfillment of. And there are several references in Jeremiah there, but Jeremiah 19 is the one that has the closest kinds of connections. This is not an exact quotation from Jeremiah, even though it's <laughs> represented that way in the text. But there are many parallels to the event that took place that Jeremiah is talking about and the event that's taking place here with Christ. So this is, I know we talked a lot about this. This is yet another incident where there's some Old Testament event that parallels or typifies something that's taking place in the life of Christ. It's not a direct one-to-one prediction fulfillment kind of thing. And, and what, what do we say was the best way to handle this kind of event when a New Testament writer cites the Old Testament in this way? What do you have to do? You have to go back and look at the context. Very good. You, you have to look at what's happening in the Old Testament first and then see how the New Testament writer is using it. And then you can best understand the points of relation and comparison that that New Testament writer is making. Matthew does this a lot. And again, we're used to, and there are cases where there is a prediction in the Old Testament and a direct fulfillment in the New Testament. But most often, in Matthew's Gospel in particular, that's not the way it's working at all. There's some Old Testament event that, if you were just reading it on its own, you wouldn't necessarily even see it as a prediction. But Matthew, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is making the connection as he writes his gospel. And he's showing that God planned both events in advance, and he's showing that it's a fulfillment in that sense, that, that God himself is making a connection through Matthew as a scripture writer. Does that make sense? So now we go, we talked about the, the two accounts and how they can be harmonized. Again, that's a long tradition in church history. Um, and as we said, the priest bought the field, but they, it's not contradictory to say that Judas acquired it with his money because his money was the one that was used to buy it. All right, so now we go to the first Roman phase before Pontius Pilate. Um, this is recorded in all four Gospels, but John has the fullest account, so we're going to start there, John 18, beginning in verse 28. They led Jesus, therefore, from Caiaphas into the Praetorium, and again, that was either at the Antonio Fortress or at Herod's Palace, and it was early, early in the mornings, wee hours. And they themselves did not enter into the Praetorium, he's talking about the Jewish authorities, in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. All right, we've got another issue here, right? Didn't Jesus and the disciples already eat the Passover Thursday evening? And wouldn't that, according to the law, be the time that you would eat it? So how do we reconcile John's account, which, again, is decades later than the other synoptic gospels. How do we understand what he means when he says that these Jewish authorities don't want to go into the praetorium so they don't get defiled and can eat the Passover? For them to go into anywhere that was Gentile territory would defile them, especially at this time of celebration. So, so they, they couldn't do that. Would... So that part's clear enough. But my question is, I thought the Passover had already been eaten. Certainly Jesus and the 11 
had already eaten the Passover or the twelfth. Weren't there like two feasts right there together, and sometimes it's all called Passover? But Excellent. That's right. So you got the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days after Passover, and yet it was so closely tied together that it's considered part of the Passover as well. You actually had separate Paschal meals that took place during that week. And they are just wanting to avoid defilement so that they don't have any issue celebrating the rest of the feast. So because they wouldn't come into the praetorium for fear of defilement, Pilate therefore went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now, you, you need to keep in mind as you read through this account that Pilate, um, well, he's very reluctant to condemn Jesus all the way through. That becomes very clear. But he also uh, kind of takes a jab at these Jewish authorities whenever he has a chance. And he, he doesn't really want to have a whole lot to do with this whole situation. They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Now, something in the background here that might help make more sense of that statement is Pilate would have been the one to approve sending the Roman court out, cohort out there to help arrest Jesus. They didn't want any trouble. They didn't want any kind of uprising. He made sure there were sufficient soldiers to bring him in. So you could see where because he did that, the Jewish authorities are, are thinking, okay, this guy's going to do what we need him to do. We're not able to put this guy to death. Uh, we want him put to death. We're going to have to get the Romans to do that for us. Pilate therefore said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We're not permitted to put anyone to death. That the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. What, what had he spoken about the death he was about to die? Okay, exactly. So, obviously, the Jews didn't do that. How did the Jews kill people that they wanted killed? They stoned them. In fact, the Old Testament law gave them uh, rights to do that in certain cases. They were commanded to do it in certain kinds of capital cases. But Jesus had told the Twelve on several occasions, even though they didn't understand it, hey, I'm going to be delivered up by the Jews to the Gentiles. They're going to crucify me. And this is just John's reference back to the fact that Jesus had predicted this very kind of death. Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, that's kind of the charge that they're bringing. Remember, the Jews, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe that he's made himself out to be equal to God. For them, that's blasphemy and that he needs to be put to death. But that's not going to work with the Romans. They need to make a charge to the Romans that he's basically an insurrectionist, that he's not loyal to Caesar. And that's the kind of thing that, that's kind of the way they're presenting him to them. And so that's why Pilate asked that question. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Why do you think he asked that question? Okay, very good. Exactly. I think that's exactly right. Uh, you know, Jesus, can you, can you yes. So my question is, why does he ask that question? And I think he's probing Pilate a bit here and, and saying, hey, have you just heard this about me? Are you really interested in knowing who I am? Uh, Jesus doesn't want to have a lot to do with somebody that's just 
that's not interesting and, and questioning him for no solid reason. Um, and, but Pilate does take offense at that from Jesus. Verse 35, Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you up to me. What have you done? What are you guilty of? Jesus answered, my kingdom, and, and so he's going back to the question of whether or not he's a king, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom literally is not from here. I know the NAS has not of this realm. And I want to make that clarification because Christ's kingdom does have a geopolitical aspect to it. It is an earthly kingdom in the sense that it's over the world. Now, he's making the distinction that at this point in his ministry, he's not doing what a normal kingdom that was under threat would do. He's not gathering an army and taking the kingdom by force. That's not why he came the first time. That's very much why he comes the second time. He comes back. He defeats the, the worldly kingdom that's led by the false Christ at that point in time, and he overtakes the kingdom of the world. So... That's why I want to make the, the, the point that he's not saying here, well, my spiritual kingdom in the hearts of men has nothing to do with ruling over nations. Obviously, the Old Testament kingdom has that as its background, right? The king of Israel not only ruled over Israel, but ultimately would rule over all the nations of the earth. So though Jesus denied his kingdom had an earthly origin, it, and it didn't have an earthly character in the same way that other kingdoms did. He didn't deny that it would take place in an earthly realm as the Old Testament plainly anticipated. And I want to read those references out of Daniel because that's the background. That's the, the prophecy that <clears throat> informs us of the nature of the kingdom, right? Daniel lives during the time of the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian kingdoms and he gets a couple of dreams. Well, one Nebuchadnezzar gets and Daniel interprets. One Daniel gets and an angel interprets. That's in Daniel 2 and 7. Both of them are communicating the same thing. And that is this, this series of Gentile kingdoms from the time of the Babylonians all the way down to the very end in the time of the false Christ and that God's kingdom through his son and through his Messiah is the one that destroys all those previous kingdoms that pass from one to the next, and that his kingdom will have no end. So let me just read these references to you in Daniel chapter 7. You can turn there if you want. Daniel 7, beginning verse 13. And this is where Daniel just has to describe this series of, of earthly kingdoms uh, given to him in a vision uh, and depicted as different kinds of beasts. I kept looking in the night visions, or in the dream, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, that would be the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and the kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, unlike the previous Gentile kingdoms that had come and gone through the years. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And then again in Daniel 7, verse 21, 
I kept looking, and that horn, that horn is part of the, the dream, it represents the false Christ, was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. And of course, that will be during the time of the future tribulation, the Daniel's 70th week that appears in Daniel 9. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. And then skipping down to verses 26 and 27. <clears throat> but the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion, that is the dominion of the false Christ, will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven under the whole heaven, not in heaven. It's not a kingdom in heaven. It's not a kingdom restricted just to believers today. This is all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Kind of brings in some more significance of what we read in Jude today, right? Uh, majesty and authority and kingdom, that's where all this is headed uh, when Christ returns. But in the case of the interrogation by Pilate, because what Jesus is saying is not an immediate threat to him, he doesn't see any armies, he doesn't see Jesus out there like a lot of the Jewish zealots did in trying to round up uh, enough people to overthrow Rome, that's not what Jesus is guilty of. Even though that's what the authorities are trying to make him out to be, um, he's not guilty of that. Pilate wants to release him. Pilate therefore said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I'm a king. For this I've been born, for this I've come into the world, to bear witness of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Uh, it's hard to know if he just is asking that in a very abstract sense. Is, is there such a thing as absolute truth? or if he's just not interested in knowing. But in any case, when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. So you can see the dilemma that Pilate has here. On the one hand, uh, he's got to try to keep the peace. This is a very excited time in the life of the Jewish nation. They're all there for Passover. And the Romans' job, including Pilate's, was to make sure nothing got too out of hand. But on the other hand, he's got to have good reason to pronounce a death sentence on somebody, and he doesn't see one in this first conversation with Jesus. Now, I want to move over to Luke's gospel here. We're actually going to be entering the second phase, but I want to start in Luke chapter 23, verse 5. <coughs> Excuse me. But they, the, the Jewish authorities, kept on insisting, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. But when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. Now this is still in Luke's gospel, and this is the only account that we have of Pilate sending Jesus to Herod Antipas. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, now Herod was, this is not King Herod that was in power when Jesus was born. He's already died and passed off the scene. This is one of his sons. He was called a tetrarch, which means he was over a fourth of the kingdom, and he was over the area up around Galilee and Perea. 
So a lot of Jesus' ministry had taken place up in that area, and Pilate sees an opportunity. He's going to get out of this thing and slide him over to Herod Antipas and see if he'll deal with him. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. Why would he be in Jerusalem if his uh, area was up in Galilee and Perea? I'm going to let somebody else answer. Isaiah's still in the show, right? Yes, Kathleen. That's right. So anytime you had Passover, one of the major feasts, you had a, a real um, blossoming of the population that was coming into Jerusalem at that time, and the Roman authorities would tend to come there as well. Uh, they probably enjoyed at least some aspects of the feast, but also, like Kathleen's talking about, they want to make sure that nothing gets out of hand. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus. If he had wanted to see him for a long time, he probably heard about him when he was up in Galilee because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign, some miracle performed by him. And he questioned him, that is, Herod questioned Christ at some length, but Christ answered him nothing. Now, of all the different phases, this is the only one where Christ says absolutely nothing. There were times where on the other phases where they would ask him something and he wouldn't say anything, but he always said something to each one of the people that were questioning him, except for this one. And again, this is only recorded in Luke's gospel. The chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently, and Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now, this mocking of Jesus, this beating of him, takes place several different times. It took place back with Caiaphas. It takes place here. It's going to take place a couple of different times before Pilate. And I did some reading yesterday. I was talking about the fact that there were different kinds of floggings and beatings that were administered by the Roman government. But the most severe one is the one that everybody who got crucified had to endure. And that's the one that probably you're most familiar with. After Pilate finally does decree that he die, they severely beat him and whip him, probably with a, a whip that had pieces of stone or lead in it, tore his flesh. But there were a number of different beatings and mockings that took place over the different phases of the trial. Don't just conflate all those into one. He was mocked as king, he was blindfolded and asked, you know, they would hit him and ask, who was it that hit you? Um, and Jesus uh, endured all that. He didn't have to do that. You know, think back all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't, he, he could have conceivably, I know you're getting into a uh, difficult area here, because on the one hand, he's fully committed to the will of God, and God's going to do, he's going to do what the Father wants him to do. But in my mind, at least, he could have not done this, and God could have wiped out the whole creation and started all over again, and he would have been perfectly just to do that. But Christ endured this. He did it knowing that what they were going to do to him. He did it uh, knowing that he had power to stop it if he wanted to, but he didn't. And he didn't because he was committed to paying the price of our sins and enduring some incredibly difficult treatment at the hands of these rebels against him. 
Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been in enmity with each other. They became friends because they both were opposed to Christ, in essence. I'm not staying up with my PowerPoint too well here. So Pilate's plot, his plan didn't work. He'd sent him to Herod, hoping Herod would deal with him. Uh, Jesus wouldn't even interact with Herod, so Herod sends him back to Pilate. So now we're at the third phase before Pilate. Uh, I'm going to read out of all four accounts here, but I'm going to start Matthew's gospel. Matthew 27, beginning verse 15. At the feast, the governor, and that's Pilate, was accustomed to release from the multitude any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they were holding at that time a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. What do you know about Barabbas? He's a murderer and a thief. He was an insurrectionist. He had been involved with an effort to overthrow Rome. Uh, so it's very ironic that they're actually wanting to release a guy who was guilty of the very crime that they were falsely charging Jesus with. Mark's Gospel says, And the man named Barabbas had been in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. That was an earlier event. And the multitude went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. That is, multitude now is getting involved and in asking Pilate to release Barabbas. We look at uh, Luke's Gospel, verse, chapter 23, verse 13. Pilate summoned the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion, and behold, having examined him before you, I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Now moving to John's gospel, but you have a custom that I should release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I re release for you the king of the Jews? Therefore they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. And John writes, Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus. Well, let me back up just a little bit. Uh, and this is a detail that's in Matthew's gospel and not in the others. Verse 18 says, that Pilate, this is Matthew 27, verse 18. Pilate knew that because of envy, they had delivered Jesus up to them. So Pilate knew that this man had done nothing worthy of death. He knew that he had gained great popularity among the Jews. The chief priests and the other leaders were jealous of Jesus. And <clears throat> that's why he knew that's why they were wanting what they wanted from him. Remember, Pilate's wife, and this was recorded in Matthew's Gospel, is the one that had the dream about Jesus and said it had nothing to do with this righteous man. But if we go, go, up, go back to John's Gospel at this point, John uh, 19, verse 1, Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. So this is another uh, scourging. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him blows in the face. Now again, Pilate's not ready to crucify him at this point. He's hoping that they can just, he can just punish Christ in this way, bring him out before the people, 
show him a very pitiful looking figure and that they'd be willing to release him. Pilate came out again and said to him, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus therefore came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to him, Behold the man. When therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Now you could hear that phrase and say, they're talking about the whole law, but I think it's probably more likely they're talking about a particular verse, Leviticus 24.16, which says, Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him the alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Was it true that Christ had claimed to be equal to the Father? Yeah. He said, I and the Father are one. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He told a group of the religious leaders, before Abraham was born, I am. So maybe he never came out and said, I am God in the flesh, but he made all kinds of statements to lead them to that conclusion. And it would have been blasphemy if it wasn't true. But it was true. He was the Son of God incarnate. Now it's interesting though, in verse 8 of John 19, it says, When Pilate therefore heard this statement, that is, that Christ had made himself out to be the Son of God, he was afraid. He became more afraid. And I think there's an issue here, not necessarily that Pilate believed that claim by Christ but he did have some religious sense to him and he he knew the concept of a divine man and and now he's saying they're saying that this Jesus claimed to be a divine man so Pilate entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus where are you from but Jesus gave him no answer Pilate therefore said to him you do not speak to me Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. To me, it's just amazing when you read something like that. Jesus, you know, I think it was a genuine struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. But you can tell that prayer has really strengthened him so that when he's facing these interrogations, he's the one that's in control. I mean, he's yielding to what is going to happen, but at the same time, he's not backing away, he's not afraid, and he just answers with full confidence in what he's saying. He says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Who's he talking about there? Okay, so those are the two options. I think most of the time when we read that, we think about Judas. But is Judas the one that delivered them up to Pilate, delivered Christ up to Pilate? Really, it was Caiaphas, right? Caiaphas is the one who uh, made the charge and brought him to the Roman authorities. So in what sense, let's say for the sake of argument that it is Caiaphas, in what sense does he have the greater sin? And does it mean that Pilate 
is not guilty. Because he's falsely accusing him. If it were not for that accusation, then he wouldn't. He, uh, Pilate would not do anything e to him. Exactly. Caiaphas is the one that initiated it. His guilt is the greater guilt. And just as Andre said, he wouldn't even be before Pilate if Caiaphas had not made that charge. Now, Pilate is still guilty. But the Bible does this on a number of different occasions. It talks about greater condemnation or greater guilt. It doesn't mean that the first party is without guilt, but it does make a distinction in the judgment and in the, the difference so that, <clears throat> that really Caiaphas is the one with the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Now you can tell that things start turning in Pilate's mind at this point because now they're talking about his game. They're talking about politics. And they're talking about the fact that if he's to, going to release this man, the Jews are going to bring a charge against him that he's not loyal to Caesar. And it's ironic, isn't it? The Jews earlier had said they'd never been enslaved to anyone. Now they're claiming loyalty to Caesar also that they can have Christ crucified. When Pilate therefore heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. And again, we believe that's talking about Friday there. The Passover would be especially celebrated on that particular Sabbath of, of that week. It was about the sixth hour, uh, which would be 6 a.m. on Roman time. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They therefore cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And again, it seems like here he's kind of jabbing the Jews at the same time that he's asking the question. The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Now, again, if you go over to Matthew's Gospel in the same area, uh, it's, it brings in some more detail. Matthew 27, verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. And in fact, it was going to be. I mean, that same generation, or at least part of it, was going to see the destruction of Jerusalem. But back in John's Gospel, uh, chapter 19, verse 16, he then delivered him to them to be crucified. Ultimately, he acceded to the demand of the mob. I don't think Pilate thought he was guilty at all. I think he did everything he could to try to exonerate him, but they wouldn't, <clears throat> they wouldn't hear of it. And when he started threatening Pilate's own political career, that's when he was willing to release them. Barabbas would have been a hero to many of the ones uh, because there were people that were sympathetic to the zealots and wanted the Jews to overthrow the Romans, and that's why they called for him in particular. But again, ironic that these leaders sought the release of one who was actually guilty of insurrection by all counts, and yet they... Uh, were willing, the Jewish leaders were, to uh, putting Jesus to death as something he wasn't guilty of. 
I've already made the point that they had to go to the Romans to to have Jesus executed. They weren't allowed to do that on their own. Now, some people bring up the fact, well, what about Stephen when he was stoned? Well, that wasn't a legitimate trial and execution. That was mob violence there, too. Uh, and that's probably something that the Romans just turned a blind eye to. But legally and technically, judicially, they didn't have the right to carry out uh, capital punishment. Okay, we did good there on time. We're right at 1 o'clock. Uh, next week, we'll look at uh, the actual crucifixion of Christ. So you can start reading, if you like, in Matthew 27, verse 35. If you want to read all four accounts in harmony, these are events that take place in all four of the accounts. Um, you can do that for preparation for next week. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. <clears throat> Father, we think through this account and just the things that Jesus was willing to endure, the firmness and boldness with which he answered those who questioned him. We've seen that all through his ministry. And we've seen him endure just incredible physical mistreatment, uh, starting with these various beatings and floggings and mockings, and then ultimately being nailed to a cross. Uh, we thank you that even in the midst of such a, a horrible scene, your name is honored. Your name is glorified. You, uh, you made him who knew no sin to be sin, and you punished him with the guilt or with the punishment of the guilt that we rightfully deserved. And that allowed you to be both just and the justifier of the one who puts his faith in Christ. So we just thank you again for the reminder of the kinds of things that Jesus went through. We thank you for his willingness to die for us. And we thank you uh, that he conquered death, that he rose on the third day and conquered sin and death, that we might, by faith, uh, take advantage, be the beneficiary of that atoning work and be reconciled to you and not be punished for our sins but to enjoy eternal life with you forever. I just thank you for the boldness of Christ, the calmness with which he walked through what he walked through. I thank you for the example that he is for us, who are very unlikely to receive anything close to the mistreatment he did, and yet just the way that he responded. Help us to be that way. Help us not to take vengeance, uh, but to trust entrust ourselves to you in the same way that he did. And always keep us mindful, I pray, of, of the great price that Christ paid for our lives, recognizing that we have been bought with a price and that we're to glorify God in all that we do. Thank you for just a wonderful time of worship together this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.